So this morning, I want to speak to you about the call of Paul the Apostle. Now, this is a mini-series that we've kind of been developing over the last three weeks. Remember, two weeks ago, oh, I don't know, I lose track. We spoke about the call of Jeremiah. Then last week, we looked at the message title was, What is in Your Hand? And that was all about the call of Moses. And this week, I want to look at the call of Paul the Apostle. And what's interesting is, I'm very aware it's Heritage Day. I'm trying to, I'm going to try and tie it into just a biblical understanding of heritage. How do we view it as Christians? Okay. And so that's what I want to try and do. So last week we looked at this scripture and it is, what is in your hand? What is in your hand? So we looked at this scripture and it's 1 Corinthians 1 verse 26. And it says, think of what you were. When you were called, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Now, I've underlined on the screen there the not many words. I didn't emphasize them last week. We looked at the reality that most folks who, when they are called, when they encounter God for the first time, surrender their life to Jesus, they aren't a big cheese by world standards. But that is not everybody. There are some folks who actually are a big cheese, well, as Paul calls it, um, you know, wise by human standards or influential or of noble birth. And you know who Paul is particularly referring to here? He's his own heritage. And we're going to look at, now Paul the Apostle, wrote, they reckon, more than half of the New Testament books. 13 to 15 books. We're not sure. Some of the books, we're not sure who the author is. Some people reckon it was Paul the Apostle, like Hebrews, uh, Romans, etc. But there are definitely 13 books that we know he authored. And why did God use this particular man to write so much of the New Testament? What was his uh, education? What was his cultural background? What enabled this man to be such an influence and such a, 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 a significant leader in the early church. Now we're looking at it with this, with these eyes. I want you to look and reflect on huh, my background, my heritage, where I come from, and the possible ways that God could use you. Okay, so let's look at it. Paul's heritage. Paul came from a moderately affluent family, for they met the property requirements required of citizens of Tarsus. So Paul grew up in the city of Tarsus, which was just north of Israel, modern-day Turkey, and it was a, a significant city in that time. His parents were of the tribe of Benjamin, which is one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and named him after his illustrious tribal ancestor, King Saul. Okay, We may not agree with that, but he was quite a, a big cheese in his day, King Saul. And, and that's why in Scripture, until uh, Acts chapter 13, we see Paul, the apostle known as Saul. He actually had two names. His father was a Roman citizen and also named him Paulus, okay, uh, or Paul. This citizenship placed him among the aristocracy of Tarsus. So he was Jewish. But he was also a Roman citizen because of his father. Okay? And then the last point there, his father was also a strict Pharisee. 
and so was Paul, they would have meticulously fulfilled all the ceremonial requirements of the Hebrew law. You're getting a picture of who this guy was. The guy who wrote nearly half of the New Testament. God's providence in preparing Paul may be seen in the advantages he enjoyed. He was a world citizen. Firstly, a Jew, living in a Greek city of Tarsus with Roman citizenship. Can you, can you see three cultures? He was, he was intimately acquainted with three different cultures. Jewish, Greek, and Roman. Now, how do we translate that today? Do you know that South Africans make fantastic missionaries in the world today? And you know why? Because we live in such a multicultural society, we get different cultures. And so South African missions, one of the key requirements for missionary, if you're going to a foreign nation, a foreign culture, one of the key things is to be able to understand that culture and understand how to translate and communicate the gospel to that culture. South Africans are fantastic at it. Do you know that, that we would, uh, to use an animal analogy, be classified as really good chameleons? <laughs> we are able to adapt to other cultures. And I really saw it. We, there was a pastor from uh, Manila, our Every Nation Church in Manila, who came to, to, to Cape Town when I was a pastor down in Cape Town 20 years ago. And I remember talking to him and trying to explain to him the dynamics of our church in Cape Town. And I explained to him, that we had quite a large in Cape Town colored component. And I tried to kind of explain to him the background, the historical context of the colored folks in Cape Town, which was a significant part of our church. I explained to him that in, in, in Cape Town, most of the black folk there would be of Kosa background, of the descent, coming from the Eastern Cape. Explaining to him that that is just one of the African cultures in South Africa, then I explained to him, but we also then have white South Africans who speak English, and we have white South Africans who speak Afrikaans. And those are two quite distinct different cultures as well. He was sitting there with big eyes. He says, I don't understand. In the Philippines, it's one culture. They're all Filipino. You know, and you just get on with everybody. He was so confused. He really struggled, especially when I said, listen, but then, you know, with white folk, there actually are two. And with black folk, there's some Zulu, there's some Isikosa, but most are Isikosa, but there could be Venda and Pedi and everything. He was like, how do you do church in this? Literally, you know, people, church, church, uh, church growth fundies, specialists say, listen, if you want your church to grow, the key thing is you must find a homogeneous people group. Find one people group so you can just, uh, you know, focus on one cultural group. And I'm going, but this is South Africa. How on earth? Can you be authentic to the gospel and just go after one people group? I suppose it's possible. Let's not argue about it. Okay? I suppose it's possible. But I am so delighted. Do you know what I love about our church in particular? You know, my kids, when we sometimes go on a holiday and we go to other churches, it's one of the first things that they comment when we go to some other churches. It's like, sure, this church only has people of this cultural background. What's wrong with them? You know, why are they so weird? Why, why is this not multicultural? We, we form part of a network of churches called Every Nation. Okay? What part of every don't you understand? You know, it's in the Bible. Go make disciples of all nations, every nation. And so this concept of being multicultural is entrenched in the author of nearly half the New Testament. He understood culture. He got culture. I want to share another story with you about culture. So I shared a story with you about a Filipino 
pastor who just could not understand how we pastor, how we lead people in Cape Town. And I was like, <clears throat> I'm thinking now, I should bring him to KZN. <laughs> but then, there was, a, there was a guy who was in our church a couple of years ago, Stephen Mioki. He was from Kenya. Beautiful, beautiful believer. A very committed part of our church. And he was doing his PhD actually in the theology department here at UKZN. Part of our church. He's gone back. He's now lecturing in Kenya at a university. And man, I'm still very keen to go and visit him sometime. Um, and Stephen, we were chatting to him about South Africa. This was just before he was leaving, going back to Kenya. We were chatting to him about South Africa, his experiences, what it was like as a foreigner coming in. And this was a few years ago. And he said, he said, you know, Pastor, you know what was so interesting? He said, when I came to South Africa, for the first time I realized that I was a black man. He said, in Kenya, I was not aware of the fact that I was a black man. So that's the other side of us being multicultural. And, can I say, maybe a bit hypercultural and hyper-aware of our culture and our cultural differences. Now, we understand apartheid. I'm not going to go. We understand how that system sought through various means to literally entrench the differences. But it should not, we should not... I want to say, maybe South Africans, we are too hyper-aware of our differences. And, and this is the thing. We put each other in boxes. Like, you look at me, and you think, you listen to maybe to my accent, and you say, he's an English South African. Well, I speak English because this is my background. My parents are Afrikaans. My parents spoke to each other in Afrikaans at home. All my family was Afrikaans. My parents looked at the world we live in and said, I believe, they, they believe that English was an important language and especially, I mean, look, we're talking, you know, I was conceived in the 60s, grew up in the 70s. It was rough then. Looking ahead, we didn't know how the world would turn out. My folks said, we want them to understand English. We're going to send them to English schools and speak English to them. So me and my brother, we speak English to each other, English to my parents. My parents spoke Afrikaans to, to, to each other. And so I grew up, I thought this was normal. You know, everybody, you know, their parents spoke Afrikaans and English. I found out it's not. But what does it look like? You know, in South Africa, when I was at high school, I was teased as a Dutchman. In the 1980s, um, the, it was not cool. It was not cool if you were in an English high school in the 1980s to be called a Dutchman. Then, later in life, when I was with Afrikaans people later in my life, I was teased as a Roynek, you know, which is Afrikaans, you know, sort of derogatory term for English people. My conclusion was, you know, so, so for English people, I'm not English enough because I got a surname like Wabrolter. Most of you say, what was that? Yeah, I, I, I'll teach you how to say my surname one day. <laughs> I remember when I turned to my wife, we'd been going out three, mo three months. She wasn't my wife yet. And I one day said to her, she's from Zimbabwe, doesn't speak any Afrikaans, doesn't get Afrikaans culture at all. And I said, Jen, won't you say my surname? She just went red. She said, I can't. <laughs> so if you can't, it's also okay. But you know, to Afrikaans folks, I'm not Afrikaans enough. To English people, I'm not English enough. So I just concluded, I'm a good South African. <laughs> I'm a good South African, okay? And that's why also you dress up now, heritage. I'm going like, okay, what does that look like? <laughs> 
I want to say this, though. You know, Stephen Yorkey said he was not aware of the fact that he was a black male. Now, let me say this. It's not that if you'd asked him, he didn't. In Kenya, people's identity is not entrenched in their ethnic background. He was a person, and he was a Christian, and he didn't see people, and he didn't look at people. You're a white male. You're an Indian female. You know, you're a Zulu male. He didn't look at people like that way. South Africa, we understand culture. We get cultures. We have got to make an effort in South Africa to bridge the divide. I want to tell you, the devil hates it. When South Africans of different cultures fellowship together, talk together, you are doing spiritual warfare in the heavenlies because the enemy wants to separate us and divide us. I love the fact that we've had people coming to our church and they've accused us of two things. Some people say we are too white and some people say we're too black. I'm like, hallelujah, I think we're doing quite a good job here, okay? Because you can't quite figure us out, amen? Because the Bible, when we get to heaven, folks, they're going to be people from all nations, every nation in heaven. So just get used to it now, amen? But I want to say this, folks. Stephen Yorke's identity was not wrapped up into his black maleness. You know, for me, I have, it's been a journey for me of embracing the multicultural nature of South Africa because I was conceived in the 60s, was a child in the 70s, was a teenager in the 80s. It was a very different South Africa. Folks, I find it difficult to explain to my children the South Africa that I grew up in. I find it difficult. There are things about the way we were, the way things were in South Africa in the 70s, 80s. My kids can't figure it. And, I, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play a little video now that may give you an insight into it. It's a video that I want to bounce off because I want to share some other things off it as well. And it's a, it's a video that um, I took last week at my daughter Abigail's school. She did a monologue and it was for, she does uh, drama at school. And it was a practical that they had to do. And they could choose any monologue, um, anything. And you know what I was amazed at? We listened to, we got there a bit early and we listened to some of the other kids. I don't know why people, when in that world, when you're looking for a drama, you have to look for something that is off the edges of normality off the fringes of morality and is so often challenging the very fabric of society that makes us a healthy, thriving society. I mean, the girl before my daughter uh, did a monologue on a lady who was explaining why she was a sex worker. And I was, I was sitting there like, um, I'm not sure where to look right now because it's just, it's, it, it was like, this is really uncomfortable. Abigail chose to do a monologue, and there were words in there where this, this lady that she's speaking is a Russian woman who, in the Second World War, had been an anti-aircraft gunner. Now, anti-aircraft means you have a machine gun, and you're shooting a machine gun into the sky at the enemy aircraft. This lady was a young, well, just finished school when she was conscripted and, and had to go to war. Folks, in the Second World War, Germany invaded Russia. 27 million Russians. 
died in that conflict. One quarter of the population of Russia was either killed or wounded in that conflict. The impact on Russia, the scars on that nation, I want to submit you are still not healed today. And may explain some geopolitical events that are happening. Abby does this monologue about this lady. She's now older. and She's reflecting back on a time in the war. She talks about a Christian that was martyred for his faith. I want you to listen. Have you worked hard on a Russian accent? So I trust you can hear it, um, uh, hear the accent. And I want to pick up on some of the things because uh, as, as we go on. But just listen to it. And one of the things I want you to see is this lady is agonizing to describe a different world. Now this was taken, let me just tell you, from a book by a lady who wanted to uncover the stories of Russian women who fought in the Second World War. And she, she found, it was a whole book, a collection of stories. It is not a Christian book. The author authentically wrote down the words of this woman. And My name is Berta I was sent anti-aircraft gun Russian army. I lost my voice at the front. My beautiful voice. My voice returned when I came back home. My family got together in the evening. We drank. So, work. Sing work. And I began to sing. I left for the front uh, materials and easy. I left as a good Soviet schoolgirl who had been there then. And there, there I began to pray. I always prayed before Vatican. I read my prayers. The words were simple. My own words. They had one me, that I would return to Mama and Papa. I didn't know any uh, real prayers. I, I didn't read the Bible. I did it in secret, on the slide, cautiously, because we were different then. People lived differently. You understand? We we thought and understood differently. Believer showed up among the new arrivals. And the soldiers laughed at him when he prayed. Well, did your God help you? If he exists, why does he put up the soldiers? They were unbelievers. Like the man who cried at the foot of the crucified Christ. If he loves you, why doesn't he save you? I, uh, I read the Bible after the war. Now I read it all the time. And that soldier, he was no longer a young man. He didn't want to shoot. He refused. I can't. I won't kill. Every 
crime. A terrible crime. Because they caught Marshall Plan. And two days later, they shot him. Ben. Ben. A different time, different people. How can I, can I explain it? How? Uh, fortunately, I, uh, I didn't see those people, the ones I killed. But all the same, now I realize that I killed Because I'm older now, I I pray for my soul. I, I told my daughter that, and then I died. She should take my medals and decorations. Not to miss them, but to touch. She should give them to the priest. They come to me in my sleep. The dead. My dead. So I never saw them. They come and look at me, and I keep searching with my eyes. Maybe someone was, was only wounded, badly wounded, but could still be saved. Don't know how to put it, but they're all It's a different time, a different place. I wanted to put that up for a number of reasons. That woman was desperately trying to communicate something that years later was so difficult to communicate for people to understand. I want you to also understand that, you know, South Africa... We're a product of an incredibly hard history. I think one of the key things is to understand our journeys, to understand our stories. We've been on very different journeys, but we're together now. And that means valuing and appreciating one another's culture. But I want to say this without idolizing our culture or without getting our identity fully from our culture. You know, when I was at university, I had a prayer meeting. We prayed with two other friends. One was Khat Madonsela and the other one was um, Kenneth Kobo. Kenneth was from the Eastern Cape. Khat was from Pumalanga. We had a heart after God. We used to pray every night in our res room, my room, from 11 to 12. We had this deal. You could pray in the spirit. You could pray in tongues and read scripture. But praying with the understanding, as Corinthians speaks about, was we weren't going to do that. And you know, my heart connected so deeply with those guys. Something significant happened in my heart. 
I was thinking about how my heart had been connected with these guys to the degree that I felt so much closer to these guys than anybody in my family who carried the same surname as me. And I, I came to the conclusion that I would be willing to lay my life down for these guys because our hearts were united in Christ. We had a heart after God, a heart to see the kingdom come. But yet for my cultural family, people with the same surname as me that kind of looked similar to me, we were actually just so far apart in heart. And, and that was so significant for me. That was such a significant thing in my life. So we're looking at Paul, and I'm kind of thinking, how do I, <laughs> how do I go with this? What we're saying is that God will absolutely use your heritage. But as a believer, folks, our primary source of identity is not from our heritage. It's not from our cultural background. If you read the scriptures, so many scriptures that speak about and exhort us to be unified. That's why I was listening to somebody speaking recently about the role of pastors. And they were saying, that's why in scripture, if you look at Paul's writings, how often he's addressing problems in the church, problems of belief, problems of practice. Why? Because they could cause division. Do you know that we are meant to represent our God, not just in character, i.e. how He is, but you know that how the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relate in perfect relational harmony and unity is something that we meant to represent to the world. So how you get on with your brother in Christ and your sister in Christ is so important. I was listening to the same, the same Bible teacher talking about how, look at how in certain monotheistic religions like Islam, look at how the leaders are in those cultures. Incredibly dictatorial, incredibly uh, yeah, authoritarian. And it's got to do with the concept of God. But if our concept of God is He's in perfect relational unity and harmony, how much does that affect things? So for Paul the Apostle, just to understand his background, how God used him. Folks, God's going to use your heritage. God's going to use your background. Nothing is wasted in the kingdom. But our identity is not rooted in our cultural background. A present day parallel to Paul the Apostle would be a man who speaks Chinese to philosophers in, in Beijing, quoting Confucius. Confucius was a Chinese philosopher. Writes closely reasoned theology in English and then expounds it to theology professors at Oxford University in England. Defends his faith in Portuguese before the Brazilian Academy of Sciences in Rio de Janeiro. And there really is such an academy. You can Google it. I did my homework. Writes encouraging letters to humble believers in churches he planted to build them up in their faith and help them live a victorious Christian lives. Can you see his differences? And if you read the story and you read Acts, folks, these, these little analogies that are put there 
are trying to say, what would he look like as a modern day person? And every one of those dimensions, we can trace back to his upbringing. He was, uh, when he was about 15, he went to go study under with the top, one of the top theologians in Israel. Um, and so just quite an amazing guy. F.B. Mayer said this, what was true in Paul's case is as true as for us all. A providence is shaping our ends. A plan is developing in our lives. A supremely wise and loving being is making all things work together for good. In the sequel of our life story, we shall see that there was meaning and necessity in all the previous incidents. Some of those which are the result of our own folly and sin, and that even those have been made to contribute to the final result. Isn't that beautiful? I want to look now a little bit at Paul's heritage, and we're looking in Acts 22. So there are three times in the book of Acts that we see his call, his conversion. And this is one of them in Acts 22, verse 2 to 11. It says, then Paul said, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. He was in Jerusalem when he spoke, because he was studying there under Gamaliel. Gamaliel was one of the top theologians. They reckon there were seven in Jesus' time. Seven top theologians, and Gamaliel was one of them. I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. He's speaking to the Jews in this context. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women, throwing them into prison, as also the high priest and all the council can testify. I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus, and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. So he's talking to them, the high priest, he's talking to these guys who gave him those letters to go and They are like, what has happened to this guy? So why do you think, why, what is so significant that the Lord took this guy, Paul, who was, you know, in those days, if you could choose the person that is most unlikely to become a Christian before his conversion. It would be him. I want you to think now. Who do you think in your world is the most unlikely person to come to know the Lord? I don't know. You know, is it a university lecturer? Is it some really wild guy at work, you know, who's kind of potting it up every night of the week and sometimes... uh, you know, more. Who is the most unlikely? Folks, I want you to think of that person. I want to say, with God, everything is possible. With God, everything is possible. Amen? There is not a person who's hard, whose heart is too hard for the Holy Spirit to crack. And, and, and I've been musing, Lord, why do, in Scripture do we see this account three times? And I think it is because the Lord's reminding us Nobody's heart is too hard for the Holy Spirit to find a way in. Okay, so I'm just for time, I'm going to move on from this. In Acts 7, we're coming to the stoning of Stephen. Now, in that video that Abby did, she shared about a believer that was shot because he refused to carry a gun and use it in war. And he was shot. Folks, 
That was a true account by that lady. This is another account, folks. You know, we hear stories of of people being martyred. And I don't know about you, I often wonder, sure, Lord, what is in my heart? Would I be able to take a stand like that? So this is Acts 7. When they heard this, they were furious. So so Stephen had just preached to the Sanhedrin, these religious guys. And they were furious, the Bible says. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Ha ha, who have we here? Verse 8, chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. Folks, it's astonishing that we see the, the, the vindictive hatred of these religious people, including Paul or Saul, towards believers. And yet God changes his heart around to make him one of the most influential Christians. Do you see the miracle work of the rebirth? Folks, I read the story of of Saul's conversion to becoming Paul the apostle. And I'm like, God, do it again. Do it today. Do it often. Do you have some friends in your life that you say, Lord, do a convert him from a Saul to a Paul. So Saul was generally his name because it was the Hebrew name that he that he was known by as a Hebrew. After he became a Christian and after he was sent on his first missionary journey, he switched to his uh, his uh, Greek name that his dad had given, which was Paul. And he was like it was like in his heart, things had changed so much in his heart that he changed names. God can change your name, okay? Sometimes somebody's identity is locked into a name that does not represent who God made them to be. And, and, and I've, I've, I've two instances in my life where people literally changed their names and, and it was very significant. He changed his name because there was such a significant change in his life. I see this and I say, God, I'm hungry and yearning and praying and crying out. God, change lives like this. Such radical conversions, folks. Folks, remember, to get to heaven, coming to church doesn't get to heaven. You need to be born again. You need to be surrendered to Jesus Christ. That gets you to heaven. Amen. Coming to church gets you, it's a good place to hear a message that you need to surrender your life to Jesus, make Jesus Lord of your life. That's how you get to heaven. Amen. It's so important that we don't forget a supernatural conversion is required for heavenly membership. Amen. Paul says this in Philippians 3. I was born a true Hebrew of the heritage of Israel. We're celebrating heritage, guys, and I trust you do celebrate your heritage. We celebrate the diversity of the heritage of all the peoples of South Africa. It's beautiful. But folks, as a believer, my identity is not locked primarily in my cultural background and baggage and the good, the bad, and the ugly. I recognize it. I recognize it is a very checkered past, just like your heritage background. And we celebrate the good. We ask God 
forgive us for the bad. Amen. We don't we don't want to receive shame and guilt, etc. We bring it to the cross. We trust God to redeem our culture. God, make my culture beautiful. Make my culture represent you. Make my my culture through my culture with your kingdom advance. Amen. And in every way that my any way my culture does not advance your kingdom, I'm sorry, I change with the culture. I was born a true Hebrew of, of the heritage of Israel as the son of a Jewish man from the tribe of Benjamin. I was circumcised eight, eight days after my birth and I was raised in a strict tradition of Orthodox Judaism. Okay, this is just the, the words of scripture. I gave a summary of this earlier. Living a separated and devout life as a Pharisee. Remember, this was like the most religious, most, you know, if, if there was a scale of the most spiritual people, at that time, it would have been the Pharisees. And concerning the righteousness of the Torah, the law, no one surpassed me. I was without peer. Furthermore, as a fiery defender of the truth, I persecuted the Messianic believers with religious zeal. Now, I'm, I'm highlighting this. He is highlighting this. Paul is saying, I was, <laughs> to put it mildly, the best Jew boy in I was the top of my class. I cum loudly and not softly. You cum loudly all his subjects, okay? You know what I'm saying? The student said, okay? He was top of his class and he was proud of it. And he studied hard and he memorized many chapters of the Bible, etc. He was proud of it. And what do you do with this? What do you do with this pride in your cultural heritage? Look in the next verse. Yet, all of the accomplishments that I once took credit for, I have now forsaken them and I regard it all as nothing compared to the delight of experiencing Christ Jesus as my Lord. To truly know Him meant letting go of everything from my past and throwing all my boasting in the garbage heap. It's all like a pile of manure to me now so that I may be enriched reality of knowing Jesus Christ and embrace him as Lord in all of his greatness. You know, folks, letting go of cultural baggage that is not kingdom is not that easy to do. I'm not standing here and saying it's easy to do. In our victory training, usually, I mean, this this, this, this last time, Tukuza couldn't be here, but she, she shares the stories, the battles that she's had to go through she rejoices in being a Zulu woman. But there have been big battles in being a Christian Zulu woman that she's had to fight. And please speak to her. Um, just make sure you've got lots of coffee and lots of time because there are lots of stories there. Okay, it's be- And they're beautiful stories. You know, for me, I'll share a simple story. When I was getting married, we were committed Christians, Jen and I. And something that I knew that was coming up was the bachelor's party. Now, in my cultural background, a bachelor's party was memorable for all the wrong reasons as a Christian. I remember as a young boy, my dad having bachelor's parties at our house. I remember not being able to go to sleep at night. Because there were lots of very drunk men singing very disgusting songs 
until late in the night and it will not be repeated in any public Folks, my culture of what bachelor's pop is not kingdom. And it was difficult for me, let me say, before we got married, because I knew there's a bachelor's party. I, I took the bold step of actually stepping out. Now, usually as a bachelor, it's kind of like you get swept up with a, you know, kind of what the guys do to you. But I kind of spoke to my best men and I, and I said, guys, as a Christian, there are certain ways that our culture does bachelor's parties that I'm not comfortable to do. I want to tell you I'm not comfortable, and I will not do certain things that my culture does in a bachelor's party. It wasn't easy. I had some people there that know what the tradition is. And they probably felt uncomfortable with how we did it. But I did not violate my Christian values and beliefs and witnesses, witness the way my bachelor's party was. It was difficult, absolutely. When you're trying to reshape culture and say, we're going to do it differently around here, is it easy? No, it's not. But culture changes are world changes, folks. And what does it look like? You know, there are so many things. Jen and I, as committed Christian parents, we do things differently in our home compared to, for example, how things were done when Jenny grew up in her home and differently to how things were done in my home because we committed Christian parents. And the culture that our children have grown up in our home is very different to the culture I grew up in my wife grew up in. Why? Because we committed Christians. Look what Paul says. He firstly, these previous verses, he tells just what an amazing pedigree he has as the top Jew boy in his class. And then he says, I counted nothing compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. I'm not saying throw your culture out. I'm saying if there are aspects of your culture that violate kingdom, that don't glorify God, that don't advance his kingdom, I'm saying needs to be reevaluated because your Bible and my Bible is our manual for life and ultimately I want a Christian culture. If it looks like the foods, for example folks, Jesus did a braai on the beach in John chapter 21. Folks, that's in my cultural heritage and background and as far as I'm concerned, it's biblical to braai. Okay? And you can try and convince me otherwise, okay? But I praise God for that aspect of my culture. Amen? Okay? Shri Sanyama. Amen? And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Okay. It's beautiful. There are certain aspects. I love the colors, the foods, uh, many of the cultural practices. But can we have the heart of Paul the Apostle when he says, yet of all the accomplishments that I once took credit for, I have now forsaken them and I regard it all as nothing compared to the, the delight of experiencing Christ Jesus as my Lord. To truly know Him means letting go of everything from my past and throwing all my boasting in the garbage heap. It's all like a pile of manure to me now so that compared to I may, that I may be enriched in the reality of knowing Christ Jesus 
and embrace him as Lord in all of his greatness. I want us to I want to pray for you. And you know what? I'm gonna ask Ntokozo, I mentioned you. You know, folks, as we celebrate Heritage Day, there's so much to be grateful for. But folks, heritage can be complex. <laughs> Culture can be complex. I don't know the challenges you face. But we want to pray for you. And I wonder in talks, do you think you could pray for us? That this, this beautiful, this beautiful gift of our heritage, that we would cherish it as God wants us to cherish it. And that we would have the wisdom to know how to navigate being a Christian, dot, dot, Zulu woman. Being a Christian Indian male. Being a Christian white teenager. We hope you've enjoyed this message. For more information, please visit our website at www that his people pmb.co.za and for more of our messages visit our youtube and soundcloud channels as well as other podcast platforms if you would like to contact us please email us at his people pmb at gmail.com or send a message to 061-452-0877 to join us for in-person services Visit us at 154 Burkett Road, Scottsville, Peter Maritzburg. We hope to see you soon. God bless you.